Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. We talk about Adam and Eve being the first humans, but that isn't the whole story. Adam had a wife before Eve named Lilith, but Lilith would not agree to be subservient to him, and she was cast aside and God made an improved wife with Eve. Alas for Adam, that didn't work out too well either. The idea of a perfect woman is one of the oldest stories in the world, and how that perfection might be tainted, or might go wrong, or might, heaven forbid, turn against the hand that made it, is something that has intrigued writers of fiction from the Stepford Wives to Pygmalion. On this podcast, we often talk about smashing the patriarchy. But what if you're made by the patriarchy? What if your sole reason for being is to please the men around you? This is the idea that Kat Valenti considers in her new novella, Comfort Me With Apples. Kat, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Uh, Given even what you just said there, I just want to preface this by saying that if you haven't read the book yet and you are listening to this, this is clearly going to be laden with spoilers. Uh, and you should uh, read the book before you listen to us discuss it, or or it will all be or quite uh, quite spoiled for you. Um, I'm a writer of science fiction and fantasy, and occasionally horror, uh, both for adults and for children. Um, I've been publishing for eighteen years now, almost eighteen years, um, and this will be "Comfort Me with Apples" will be my forty third book. Um, so I've been at this for a while. Uh, I, I write just a little bit of everything. You, you can't, um, necessarily pull a thread through each and each and every book of mine. Cause I'm always trying to challenge myself and, and push myself further and, and do something unexpected. So I've written a lot of fairy tale, uh, based fantasy. Um, I have written, uh, some very postmodern science fiction. Um, I've written a Eurovision in space science fiction comedy. Uh, I've done just about everything um, except realism. Uh, you may know me from Space Opera, which is the Eurovision in Space book. You may know me from the Fairyland books, which are uh, the middle grade um, fantasies that came out 10 years ago this year. The box set is coming out shortly. Um, and you may know me from Deathless, uh, which is a retelling of a Russian fairy tale, but I do jump around the genres quite a bit and comfort me with apples is no exception. Uh, it's my first murder thriller. It's a suburban murder mystery. Um, and it's, uh, it is quite different from, from a lot of the other things that I've written. So, uh, start starting a new page once again. You said about it being laden with spoilers with our intro, for which we do apologise to our listeners. But I have to say that I read the book already knowing what the twist was. And, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed it even more because I knew what was coming. And I don't have a lot of time in my days for reading. And rather than going <laughs> back and picking up on all the wonderful little details you put in all the way through, I was able to appreciate it more the first time round. Um, so I thought that was, was really good. There were so many references you worked in and you sort of you're telling it as you go along. It's really great. Thank you. So having established that uh, Comfort Me With Apples has a little bit of a biblical theme, um, it also takes ideas from the Stepford Wives and combines them with biblical allegories. And there's also 
quite a few gruesome moments in it. Um, so what made you want to do a sort of gruesome horror take on the Adam and Eve story in particular? Well, I I don't remember what I was doing that I came across this. That often happens that way. Research for some other book, probably. But I came across some very obscure apocryphal uh, piece of... Um, you know, the same kind of thing that Lilith comes from, uh, essentially Jewish fan fiction, which is uh, part of religious practice, has been for a couple millennia now, um, about uh, another wife that Adam had. And this is, you know, referenced in the book where um, God made this woman in front of Adam and he was revolted by all of the fluid and, uh, you know, yuckiness of organic life being assembled in front of you and and rejected her. And at the time I was like, Adam, man, come on. Like, what are you doing? How many wives are you going to screw with? And it doesn't say what happened to her, just that the Adam, you know, refused to to take her to wife. So, you know, uh, who who knows what kind of recycling program she was put through. But the idea of Adam as a serial killer, as uh, as somebody who had gone through many, many more than Lilith uh, before, before even she came along, um, was really intriguing to me. It was, yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting thing, especially for me, it was, you know, this idea of having a woman specifically made for him and yet you know still he manages to reject her like <laughs> yeah you, you've got it created specifically for you and still you think that you're too good for them all right okay what made you king of everything <laughs> <laughs> Who knows how that might be relevant to modern life uh, and relations between uh, <laughs> particularly uh, hetero um, men and women. Uh, you know, so much has been done in the name of that absurd origin myth uh, and, and so much hatred of women and suspicion of them that, that sort of is underwritten by this story. Um, the idea of, of it actually being a very sinister uh, story about a man just churning through women and using them for, for his own, um, you know, service and, and, and pleasure and, and all of the things that men have used women for uh, since time immemorial. And, and I think that, you know, once we get to sort of the mask off ending, you know, possibly even more chilling than all of that is that in this, you know, version of Eden, like God is backs him up on it and keeps making new wives out of different body parts and trying to, uh, you know, satisfy this, this frat boy man child. Um, and I think that that, that is even more horrifying really, uh, than, than Adam himself, who is after all the first man and therefore dumb and easy to trick. <laughs> the idea for me is that when, when you have this, kind of cycle of trying to create the perfect woman. And this just plays out with how women, you know, all around us in our magazines and on TV, everywhere, we're sort of given this kind of specific image that you have to be, you have to be this perfect woman and you have to have, you have to like tick all these boxes. And if you don't tick all these boxes, then you aren't worth anything. And this this whole idea of this man somehow, like at the very beginning of everything of the creation narrative that we have, men just said, well, 
I don't want this woman. I want another one. You have to make her perfect for me. It's really harmful. And it's something that we really battle against constantly every day, like every day. And someone like me, I, I read a lot about the kinds of media narratives and how they shape our ideas and all this sort of stuff. And yet still I'm, I'm too ashamed to go out without shaving my legs. And, and it's, it's so internalized now. It's sort of a compulsory femininity. Yes. Yes. And it's, you know, this idea of this perfect woman becomes completely robotic and terrifying because it's this weird, we live in this weird situation where we're told we have to be perfect and we're constantly trying to live up to this ideal that someone else has created. And yet at the same time, we are kind of terrified by anyone who actually manages to reach any kind of that perfection where we have, you know, things like Stepford Wise, where if you have women, a group of women or or just one amazing woman, you you then sort of hate that person. And it's it's this weird, bizarre thing how we're all kind of striving for perfection, but we also hate the idea of that perfection and want nothing to do with that perfection. And I was just wondering what you think about um you know the horror aspect of this and and how you played up to to writing that real horror narrative with this in mind well i mean there there is a certain horror to even the idea of perfection because perfection is inhuman by its definition there are no perfect people there are no perfect human institutions there are no uh, perfect human behaviors you know we are we are flawed at, at every step and of course the eden story is partly meant to explain that essential flawed nature. Uh, but it doesn't really need to be explained. <laughs> you know, we are we are beings and and perfection is beyond us. And I think that's part of why we both strive for it, because they're all everybody has this set of expectations on them that are brought about by not just culture, but you know, your your intimate family and you know the way that you are uh enculturated and 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 raised to relate with other people and then the other humans that you bond with throughout your experience in education and, and, and in your, in your work life, you know, all of these expectations on everyone, uh, we naturally try to rise to them and succeed to varying levels throughout our lives, but it's not meant to be achieved because as you say, you know, nobody likes the perfect person in class or at, at the office who uh, can do no wrong. You, you know, you transition to, uh, you know, look at that bitch over there eating your lunch really quickly uh, when, when people seem perfect. We don't like that because it is in, it is inhuman and we feel lesser uh, next to it. If, if should we ever even imagine that we encounter it? And, you know, there's a whole sort of su subgenre of suburban horror fiction that kind of plays on this uh where the the the, the me mechanical almost mechanical uh definitely mechanized and and mass marketed perfection of of particularly the american suburbs but you know every every place has posh neighborhoods uh is always underwritten by something awful and terrible sort of enforcing um that perfection, because that's the other thing about perfection. It can't last. It, it, it isn't sustainable. Uh, it takes, it takes in more energy than it puts out. Can we hold an institution like the patriarchy responsible for this desire to instill perfection, you know, in women? Is it one of those things where 
possibly it was a patriarchal idea and then it gained momentum on its own. And it's one of those things where we now see it as not something directly related to the patriarchy, but more a criticism of women, where women kind of criticize other women for their perfection or lack of. It's hard to even call the patriarchy an institution. It, it's an idea. Mm. It's a meme. It's a, it's a you know, way of organizing psychology, which then organizes civilization and culture. Um, you know, can we blame the patriarchy for expectations on women? Sure. But were we to live in a matriarchy, you know, the expectations would still be there. They would just be different. Um, and w- if, if it was possible to be in a, I don't know, and biarchy. I don't know. I don't know if uh, there's even a word for that that kind of thing yet. The uh, expectations again would be different. So I don't think that we can blame the patriarchy for there being gendered expectations. Uh, I think that humans uh, are super into categorizing things and always have been, and uh, that instinct towards categorization would always be there, no matter who was sort of mimetically on top. Um, and and certainly any kind of organizing principle like that requires, and this is this is really what's at the core of Come From Me With Apples, any organizing principle such as the patriarchy requires the people in it to constantly labor to maintain it. And in order to extract that labor, it tells a whole bunch of lies about itself, about its goals, about its origins, everything about it in order to make it palatable and in order to make the people, particularly the people oppressed by it, further its aims. You know, to convince women to not only exist under conditions of of patriarchy, but uh, to enforce them in others is quite a trick. And the tricky thing about it is that it's very, for very few of us, is it something that's consciously happening? It's something that's given to us as as tiny, tiny children uh, and enforced at every step along the way until it feels like our own desires and thoughts and beliefs and ethics, but it, it isn't. It, it was very much given to us for a purpose. Gosh, you're, you're giving such good answers that I kind of feel you touch on all of the questions we wanted to ask you this <laughs> evening. So sort of taking a, a sidestep, um, when you mentioned about posh neighborhoods, that made me think um, the Stepford Wives and Comfort Me with Apples are both stories that revolve around the housewife and having the perfect home, living in the perfect neighborhood or whatever. Do you think female perfection in the eyes of men is intrinsically linked with domesticity? I mean, if we set the idea of a perfect woman on a spaceship or in a secondary fantasy world, do you think it would look different? Well, I mean, I think we have seen the idea of a perfect housewife on a spaceship in a very subtle way. Um, There is, again, a whole subgenre of um, stories and books about uh, AIs running spaceships, and a lot of them are women. And I think that's what you get when you put this personality type on a spaceship. You get an organizing intelligence caring for the, the ship. Uh, and of course, my God, we see it all over fantasy because fantasy is just can't quit the medieval era and its, its own particular ideas about how that world worked, which are almost exclusively wrong. Uh, but the, the, you know, the perfect queen or consort or princess or, uh, you know, nobleman's daughter or peasant woman, it, it, it's everywhere. These, these sort of flat, almost caricature like, uh, versions of, of women who 
exist in service and for service who uh, take care of all of the um, unpleasant parts of life uh, for, you know, their masters, uh, which is, which is what it is. Uh, you know, uh, it seems like a tangent, but it really isn't. Um, so much of fantasy literature, particularly high fantasy deals with kind of medieval military uh not just battles, but, you know, the motivations behind battles and the lead up to them and, and the ramifications of them. And so many writers who choose not to include women in these stories or to only include them as, you know, someone's mother who's sad, their son is going on crusade or whatever, uh, you know, will point to real history and will say that, well, you know, women didn't fight in battles, so there's no reason to include them in these narratives. And what that misses out on, and I think part of what was one of the original seeds for apples um, is that women were deeply involved in military campaigns in uh, the medieval world. They were following the, uh, the armies and not as camp followers and prostitutes. That's, you know, something male writers are perfectly happy to write about, but as uh, support staff, as nurses and uh, laundresses and uh, cooks and all of the people who keep an army going. And it's interesting to me that I've never seen a high fantasy uh, book told from the point of view of those women, any of those battles to told from the point of view of the women who did the totally unglorious labor of, you know, making sure that all of the soldiers had a shirt to wear, uh, you know, making sure that there was food for everyone. And so many of these people were women, much as in our, uh, in the West right now, um, you know, the vast majority of healthcare, of elder care, of education uh, service is, is done by women. Uh, so, you know, the labor of women is, is very deep in Comfort Me with Apples and, and what that labor means and who it, who it oppresses and who it frees, more importantly. I totally agree with all that you said about the fantasy side, because, yeah, I'd love to see a book like that. That'd be amazing. But I kind of wonder what you said about sci-fi, because you were talking about the ship sort of being feminine and AI and, and being subservient. But surely there's a different element there, because the ship is, it might be female, but it's very controlling. It, it, it encompasses everyone. So it has a level of control that perhaps Sophia doesn't have in your book. And if it's an AI, it's faster and quicker. And there's always that, not element of threat, but that element that it could defend itself. Whereas what I loved about Sophia was she was just so wonderfully normal. Um, and I just, I just wondered if that would translate very well to actual AI, because you had a sense of vulnerability with Sophia that really worked, which I don't think you'd get if you had them as an artificial cre creation who, you know, was just that little bit faster, was perfect, yes, but could, you know, break your arm if you really pissed her off. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, two things. One, that's kind of the mother archetype, though, isn't it? You know, the, the woman in the house who can arrange everything and produce anything, you know, from a child's perspective. But from a child's perspective, your mother is totally in control of you and you are at her mercy. Uh, so I think that there is something slightly threatening about that figure anyway, which is part of why we get these images of 50s housewives that are quite chilling, uh, that do have that sort of sense of menace about them. And it, as soon as a story is from a child's point of view, then that figure uh, becomes powerful rather than than powerless. And the second thing is, oddly enough, um, I wrote a book uh, about the, you know, about AI, about the birth of AI called Silently and Very Fast um, about 10 years ago. And it actually is kind of that story in that 
the original program that is that manages to evolve uh, into a, a true AI is a, a house management program um, called Alephsis, and uh, it's it it and the family that uh, this particular copy of the program uh, is in service to uh, is slowly develops intelligence from all of those um, behaviors and and uh, acts that that housewives perform. But I hadn't really thought about it like that. I mean, it's interesting where, where you talk about labor and kind of the, the roles that women perform, the, the domestic roles that they perform, or as you say, you know, in, in the army, they were there propping everything up. You know, if there's nobody there doing the laundry or any of that, you know, this stuff has to get done. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, it's interesting because the story goes, you know, that Lilith was considered unacceptable because she wasn't subservient enough, which is just a yuck narrative, (laughs) but, you know, fine. Um, And it it does create this idea that women were meant to be subservient to men. We aren't good enough Mm. unless we are subservient. But it then begs the question, do they... Do men really want that? I mean, obviously the patriarchy has changed and and society has changed, but it feels like that kind of assumption belittles men as as much as it does women and very much plays into ideas of toxic masculinity. Well, I mean, first of all, I do think we need to hashtag not all men this. Uh, you know, it's, it's <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> ju- ju- just as impossible to talk about men as a monolithic group as it is to talk about women, you know, e- even all the men within one culture, uh, you know, cannot be discussed that way. So, you know, yeah, some men absolutely do want that. You know, we've, we're seeing what's happening in Afghanistan. There are plenty of men who do absolutely want a, a totally subservient woman, not just subservient, but a a woman who in some sense just is not a person. You know, that's kind of what the Stepford Wives was about. The, you know, the internet likes to call it a bang maid, Uh, you know, men men wanting someone who will just do the household labor and perform sexually uh, and, and require nothing else. And, you know, we have seen that as a culturally enforced requirement throughout history and in some cultures very much still. Um, do all men want that? No, certainly not. Uh, and I think the more problematic, I mean, it's easy. It, it is so easy, particularly where we sit uh, and, and within the privilege that we sit in to, you know, look at something like Afghanistan and say, well, that is categorically wrong. That's clearly wrong. Uh, and it's equally easy to, you know, look at men who are comfortable with, you know, women as equals and, and as creatures of agency and, and, you know, their own people doing their own things, uh, and say that that's good. Um, I actually think that what's in between is where things get very, very gnarly because we, we are in a very odd period of history where we've spent about 40, 50 years, you know, telling young girls that they can be anything in the world and, uh, you know, don't have to be housewives and, you know, should you know, own their power and all of these great messages. You know, I, I, I really remember uh, a transition from when people looked at me as a little, little girl and assumed that I would just be a mother and a housewife growing up. And, and I remember that slowly changing to people asking me what I wanted to do for a job. Uh, so even within my lifetime, you know, this has changed. Um, but 
we haven't spent that same 40, 50 years telling men anything, um, anything different than we've always told them. So, you know, men who have come out on the more progressive side have in many ways bootstrapped themselves into that because we are still telling young men and, and boys that, you know, a wife is part of a, you know, complete life uh, and that they don't necessarily have to do the same amount of chores as their sisters, even in progressive families, I've seen this. Uh, and that, you know, there is a certain amount of service and labor owed to them as men. It's very hard to shed that because we were all raised with the same thing and we're trying to change it, but we didn't accompany that opening of the other side of the gender binary to girls by opening the girls' side to boys. And as someone who's raising a young boy right now, um, a young boy who entirely on his own, it's not me, I hate pink, uh, loves pink, loves, you know, all this very feminine coded stuff, people freak out about that. They don't freak out about giving a little girl trucks and, you know, a chemistry set and letting her run around in overalls. They absolutely freak out about putting a little boy in a dress and letting him have all the, you know, fluffy, sparkly pink stuff he wants. So we have worked on one side of it as a culture and not on the other side. And so now we are sitting here with a generation of men who have grown up with the messages of the patriarchy, but the women in their age cohort have grown up with an entirely different set of memes and they don't always get along very well. So now when we talk about the perfect woman in 2021, in many ways, uh, you know, the oppression is, is still totally there because not only do you need to keep a perfect house and look perfectly beautiful and have perfect children or not have perfect children if you want to go the you know route of child-free perfection which is a whole new archetype that has sprung up um but you need to be able to pay half the bills and and uh you know bring in a good income as well and men's expectations have not increased equally. So now we have the second shift and we have women who are, you know, making good money at good careers, but still have to come home and do all of the domestic labor. So we're at a pretty messed up time for all this right now. Uh, and I don't, I don't really know how it's going to sort itself out. And part of what Apple's is about is going back to you know, the origins of these ideas and examining the entitlement that, that comes from that. And I find that even, uh, I mean, I, like, I don't want to say anything offensive, but like even uh, some of the progressive men that I know in my life, you know, they still kind of expect that they're not going to be the ones on the floor with a toothbrush, getting the grime out of the corners or doing the, the, unglamorous, you know, not, not fit for uh, Instagram parts of parenting. Um, you know, that's still a really common occurrence. Yeah. It's, it's why I like, is it, I'm not sure if it's Sweden. It's, it's one of the Nordic countries that actually like has enforced paternity leave. Like, thank you. Why doesn't everyone do this? Because even that small shift would just make a huge difference in the expectations and uh, yeah, just uh, understanding that it is important for a father to be with a child as well as the mother. Um, just just that little shift would be amazing. But it, it goes back to what you said earlier about how it's partly about the the complicit 
actions of everyone within the society because as you say we've we've changed the messaging for women but they don't want to change the messaging for men i don't think at the moment because anything at least w- in the conversations i've had with people it feels like men feel that they're going to somehow lose something by well, changing shit, the narrative are. around them <laughs> but they but they are oh my God, it's such a good deal. Like when you really think about it, it's such a good deal that they had. All you had to do was work eight hours outside the home and, you know, maybe maybe 10, maybe 11, maybe not uh, in previous eras, maybe even less, uh, which you would do anyway because humans are driven to accomplish something and because we all have to eat. So doing what you would do anyway, you get to come home and have a, a human being, a human being who is completely devoted to you, who does all the gross stuff around the house that you don't want to do, who raises your kids for you, who has sex with you, who literally can't leave you, cannot leave no matter what you do, who you can beat if you feel like it, if you had a bad day at work and no one will say a thing and you can beat those kids too if you want. And you are treated like a prince in your own house and your wife is like a puppy bringing you slippers and newspaper. Holy shit, that is an amazing deal. That is that is awesome. If you just take the ethics out of it and uh, like that there is a human who is being compelled on the other side of it, it is like as, as far as return on investment, it's amazing. So yeah, they are losing that. And I understand that that might be kind of a bummer uh, to not to not have literally the best deal in the history of, of social development. But um, it's a deal that thrived at, on the suffering of half of humanity and the total denial of their personhood and choices. Yeah, uh, I was just stunned into um, agreeing <laughs> silence. <laughs> <laughs> to just pick up on kind of what you were saying before about the fact that, you know, this hasn't moved the other way. We were thinking about narratives where we'll, we'll turn this on, you know, turn it on its head. We've talked about perfect women men designing the perfect woman but what about women designing the perfect man it is are there narratives out there where i mean i i think there are i mean i think that there is a, a discourse where women now are talking about the perfect man and the perfect man is someone along the lines of a house husband and but it's always said somewhat jokingly and i'm i'm still unsure that that this has ever reached the same level of discourse as the the kind of ideal of the perfect woman Well, I I don't think it has. And for a couple of reasons, look, men suffer under patriarchy as well. And, and I also just like, we're talking about men and women here and gender is a spectrum. And, you know, I think we'll probably get into talking about trans and NB experiences uh, a little bit later, but, you know, part of like understanding those binary worlds and the way in which culture tries to enforce them is part of taking that spectrum apart. So I just want to say that when we say men and women, even both of those words are are much more complicated than they seem. But men do suffer under patriarchy as well. And there are a tremendous amount of expectations on them. Um, You know, the the one that people talk about a lot is like, boys don't cry and, you know, not to show emotions. Of course, anger is an emotion. uh, and, And so is resentment so is jealousy so it's men are allowed negative emotions essentially um and that's something that i know a lot of parents uh of this generation are really working to change men do suffer under patriarchy but what is fairly unique to uh the 
to to women's relations with men. Again, I'm stumbling over words because I the concept of women as a as a group is more complicated than just heterosexual, uh, you know, monogamous, uh, you know, women in, in gated communities. Um, but women are generally not raised thinking that they are entitled to a mate. You talked earlier about if you don't achieve these uh, markers of perfection, of, of, you know, physical attractiveness, of capability, of domestic capability, of, of income capability, all of these things, the failure mode for women is not having a mate at all. And we are all, you know, the spin, the, the horror of the spinster, which is not really a horror in any way, but, um, that, that is the failure mode. Women, women are aware from early on that they may not get a partner at all if they do not conform. Whereas men are taught to see having a partner as kind of automatic. Uh, it's, it's definitional to their masculinity. Um, but, being able to acquire, attract and acquire a partner is something that is fairly taken for granted. And I don't think that women sort of think about the perfect man because we're all very conscious that, that there isn't going to be one, uh, that we are dealing with the archipelago of expectations that I was just talking about. And even the idea of a house husband, look, I don't, I don't know any, Buddy who has a house husband who is, you know, happy uh, with that. I don't think I really know anyone who has a house husband at all. It's just that men have not been given cultural narratives that make them feel positive about that role in life. And there are definitely some stay-at-home dads out there and house husbands, and um, some of them are amazing people. But again, they've kind of bootstrapped themselves medically into uh, a, a better way of thinking. Um, and I just, I just think that that entitlement to not just romantic partnership, but the the binary of labor in that domestic partnership um, is not something that that women are very often uh, anywhere really raised with. That entitlement that you speak about, the, that is um, the core part of the so-called incel, isn't it? This, this incel culture where the men are basically sitting around it, uh, in their home thinking that looking at other men with women thinking, why don't I have this? And I I don't have this because it's the women's fault that I don't have this, which I find somewhat um, yeah. terrifying. Yeah. And I mean, there's some of that terminology, you know, in, in, in the way that Adam um, talks in Apples and uh, the way he talks about women, the way he talks about what he's owed and what he needs and, uh, you know, the way he thinks of their bodies as, as literal objects um, to collect um, you know, the way that he uh, organizes his life. So he's never home. You know, he, he is, his social circle is God, but, you know, it, it is angels and, and all of the angels are male coded and, and uh, you know, is, is the company of men, which is how patriarchal society has rolled for, for some time. It's, a, you know, enforced Patriarchal societies are deeply homosocial societies where uh, companionship, you know, intellectual companionship, uh, emotional companionship comes from other men uh, rather than women who are who are there for service. Um, and one of the things that Sophia talks about very early on before any of this is, is, is clear in the narrative is that she feels uh, very strongly that it, part of her her 
reason for being part of her obligation, part of her duty is to maintain her husband's social status within the community. Uh, and anything she does herself personally can alter it. And so the way that she must proceed through the world is is not altering it, is, is maintaining a dominant social status for her husband, not for herself. I read an article recently uh, by Noah Balatsky on Tor.com about the original novel, The Stepford Wives. Um, and it notes that the perfect women of Stepford are a bleak indictment of the boring men who have such boring dreams. So following on from everything that we've discussed um, so far tonight, who in society does unbridled patriarchy actually serve? So I think this is a really interesting question because on the surface, well, the patriarchy serves men, obviously. But I mean, who who the patriarchy truly serves is, of course, upper class men. And there, you know, in there, there's intersectional feminism, and boy, there there better be, uh, you know, an equivalent uh, movement for for men because uh, the intersections of race and class with mas- masculinity um, are really intense and not discussed nearly as much as they are uh, in terms of feminism. But um, of course, patriarchy serves most powerfully upper class men who can oppress the men below them and the men below them in turn oppress women. But I think that at the core of that is a difference in not just who the patriarchy serves, but in in the way that it talks to each of us. Because for women, the patriarchy is a compulsion and for men, it's a bargain. It is a deal struck with men that no matter how badly other men treat you, there is somebody less than you and there is somebody that you can treat however you want. There is someone you have control over. So let these other men have power over you and you ha- you can have somebody over whom you have power and children uh, go, go along with that as well. It's a terrible bargain and it requires men uh, and has required for millennia to in some ways bifurcate their own soul and see half of humanity as not of a relation to them, to see the, the, the very person who gave you life through whom you passed to come into this world as not a human being. That is something that damages the soul. It damages a man's soul as much as it damages a woman's soul. The, the, to, to convince yourself that any portion of humanity is not worthy, is not as real, as human, as uh, divine, as, as yourself, damages not only those other people, but, but your own soul. And so for men, patriarchy is a, is a terrible devil's bargain struck. But for women, it is simply a compulsion that goes back to one of the few, uh, you know, marked differences biologically between men and women, which is that men tend to be stronger and bigger. And uh, in f- coming up with a fancy ethical, uh, you know, possibly in Latin, way to justify using that slightly increased strength and size in order to compel labor and compel love, to compel every positive thing for yourself and, and, and give little back. Um, it, it, it's, it's sold to women in a different way than it's sold to men. And I think that it's part of why romance and you know, not just romantic comedies, but romance literature all the way back to Austen and before is 
so focused on women and, and, and delivered to women and marketed to women because love for women has been historically, um, our bargain. It's, it's, it's the currency with which our labor and, uh, our, our, physical service is purchased. And so you got to con- you got to convince women to do it somehow and and the idea of of romantic love uh is is part of of how women have been uh pulled into this situation. So I think that the patriarchy ultimately serves power. It serves itself uh much as as most human institutions do. It serves those who are already in power uh generationally and uh and and politically, but it does not uh, market itself as the same thing to both men and women. We've talked an awful lot about the perfect woman's story and Adam and Eve and Lilith and the patriarchy and all these kind of things. But I think it would be an injustice to the novella if we didn't briefly touch on something else that you've worked into (laughs) this hugely impressive, very small book that has so many ideas in it. But there's a real Bluebeard vibe to this book, the idea that the out-of-bounds cellar contains a life-changing secret. Now, do you think it's a conceit of fiction that we can only have perfection if we hide away the darker side of it? And is there always a darker side to perfection? You know, I presume, given humanity in general, it's probably not possible to have perfection without some darker side. But do you think maybe you could have a perfect character who learns to live with or even embraces that darker side of perfection and still maintains their perfection. As an old woman of 42, uh, I, I've yet to see anything in this world that doesn't have a dark side to it. Uh, I, I, you know, I think that there's a television show called The Good Place that uh, ended not very long ago. And uh, I think one of the, the biggest ideas that it put out there um, you know, pithily summed up on the internet as there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, but uh, that every every little thing we do in this very connected, hyper-populated world connects to suffering on uh, for somebody somewhere. That even buying your mother a bouquet of flowers involves the exploitation of of labor in developing countries uh, up, up to underpaid people working for the florist and, and, uh, you know, damage done to, um, the environment in order to produce these, uh, identical looking flowers instead of plants that are, are more beneficial for the topsoil. You know, there's a, basically a network, a web of suffering that, that every single act accesses, whether we want to or not. And, uh, unfortunately that, that just is life on this planet right now. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the fault of capitalism even. Uh, I, I think it's, it's simply the fault of, of humans being kind of shitty, uh, under any system that they create. Um, not hugely shitty. I think if you even it out, we average across, you know, shittiness, we all, everybody comes out to just kind of shitty. Uh, some of us are amazing human beings and some of us are, are absolute rubbish and you know most of us end up on just kind of shitty which is a very pessimistic way to talk about humanity but you know uh it's been it's been quite a two years so i'm a little on the pessimistic side um so i i I don't i i think that we've we sort of see characters like uh dorian gray who's sort of a perfect character that embraces the dark side and 
Dorian Gray sucks. He's an awful person. I would not want to spend any time with him. You know, he's he's presented as charismatic all the way through the book, but God, he sounds like just insufferable, like so many uh, young men I went to college with. Um, I, I I think that if you embrace darkness by definition, there is something dark in you, and and therefore you know not perfection. But I, I don't necessarily think perfection. I, we're, there's also a difference between like moral perfection and physical perfection or ethical perfection or or you know uh, there's there's so many different kinds of perfections and of course you know bluebird himself uh, you know it, it's he he is that person who embraces embraces a very dark instinct uh you know he's whoever the wife the present wife in any given bluebird story is it's not the first she's never the first um and in some ways maybe the Bluebeard stories are, are some of the first serial killer fiction. Um, it's a very, very dark uh, premise, even for a fairy tale who thrive on dark premises. And, um, you know, to some extent that, that whole, you know, there's something in the basement. I mean, God, it's a trope from way back. And, uh, you know, from Bluebeard to through the Telltale Heart, like the, there's so many instances of something like that. And, um, you know, I think part of the reason that it, it, it works so well in stories like apples is that the house is supposed to in these in these harshly demarcated gender binaries the house is supposed to be the domain of the woman it's supposed to be the place where she does have control it's part of her bargain that yeah she may not get to choose her life or be able to go out unaccompanied or even choose her clothing but in in this house within these walls you know she does have power she does have authority and the bluebird stories always start by taking away some part of that house that she should have total and intimate control over and saying, even here, even here, you don't make the rules, even here, there's something forbidden to you. Uh, and, you know, taking just, it, it's a very violating thing, just taking a part of all she's been given away. And of course, that is the Eden story. You're given this humanity adam and eve are given this this beautiful perfect garden uh to live in and then part of it is taken away except for this tree except for this door uh you know the, so the, the 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 story of the world begins with the story of secret the story of a violation the story of taking something away well i think that is a perfect place to stop um and i have to say that even listening to this podcast and and knowing what was coming in advance i would still say this is an excellent book to read and that knowing what we discussed this evening will not spoil it in any way and i have to say that adam's final speech has gone down in history in my opinion as one of the best villain speech ever it was just <laughs> So amazing. I was talking to Lucy Hansen about it earlier. We were just having a chat about what was coming up and I was like, oh, and there's this bit. And she's like, oh, oh, that's awful, isn't it? <laughs> so yeah, it's, <laughs> it is definitely a, an excellent book. And thank you so much for coming on this evening and talking to us, Kat. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hansen. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.